If this is your first time here, welcome. Welcome to Susie B. Susie's the reason that I, one of the reasons that I'm standing here today. And as I said this morning, not in the gutter somewhere. During the week, um, I, had, I had two dreams. And I don't often get dreams, but I had two dreams. And the first one I had, they were night after night. And the first one that I had was terribly unusual. I was, I won't go into the whole dream. It was a long dream, but essentially I was living a, another life. I had a different wife. I had a different family. I lived in a different city or my hometown. And it was a very unusual dream. It was a, it was a, a life that I lived out in this dream and nothing really particular happened. Actually, nothing really happened at all. It was quite a boring <laughs> life. And I, I saw all these things and all these people that I knew from my school days. And, and it was this life that I watched. And I woke up in the morning. And it was one of those dreams where I thought, I'm not going to share that with Jess just yet. <laughs> Until I work out what it is God is saying to me. So I just left it. I wrote it down and I left it. And then the next night I had another dream. And I was in my hometown again. And I was with a different wife. And it was a different group of friends and a different life played out. But in the second dream, I had this, almost like I had realized that I was dreaming. And, I, and in the dream, I said to God, I prayed and I said, God, this is unusual. What are you trying to tell me? And in an audible voice in the dream, I heard God say this, I'm showing you your past so that I can bring you into your future. And I woke up and I said to Jess, and I woke up at like two o'clock and I wrote this dream down. And in the next two days were two very awful days for us. Jess and I were very sick, like extraordinarily sick. And as much as I can understand why we were sick, there was something in me about these dreams that was stirring. And I said to Jess, there's something at play here. There's something spiritually that's happening. And I, I haven't thought about the dreams since. I've talked about them with Jess and I explained them. And just while we're worshipping, I, I heard God say that, as we've been going through James, James draws this picture of a parallel. He draws this picture of two things, and I've explained that before, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And I felt like God was saying to me in these dreams, I've given you an option in your life to walk with me or to not. I've given you, like I've said before, life and death, choose life. Before you, there's been blessings and cursings. And as 2020 comes to a close, I've been talking with a lot of people, and there seems to be this push for 2020 to end and I was talking with a friend during the week and I said to him you know it was like that in 2019 and we really wanted 2019 to end and as God showed me this this dream he said don't let go of the things you've come through because they're the things that are going to bring you into what I have for you so what, what I felt God saying in this time is you've walked a path you've walked a journey and look for Jess and I the last four weeks have been more than enough reason for us to hurry up and end 2020. We have been in the trenches and it has been a very difficult time for us. But I heard God say to me, don't waste what I've put before you. And I'm going to get into it at the end. I think this is where James, he leaves it off. But as he's talking to the church in Jerusalem, he's saying to them, this thing that you've come through has strengthened you into something bigger. Your past has brought you to where you are and now you get to decide, am I going to live from the blessings, from the wisdom from above or the wisdom from below? And God, I think, is, is revealing to us is it doesn't matter where you've been. It matters where you're going. 
everything that we do as we move forward into this next year, everything that we do as we close out this year before us, it doesn't matter where we've been because God is drawing a picture before us. He's pulling us in to say, I've got something for you. And he has something for every one of us. But he's saying, my boy, come. Come and do as I've asked you to do. Come and be who I've asked you to be. Because in this moment, I've got something for you. In this moment, I've got a place and a position and I want you with me. I love that Timmy started singing that closer. Come closer to me. The past, whether you don't know Christ or you do, your past can be taken from you and you can be given the future you were always meant to have. But it's founded in Christ. It's founded in Him. So when we learn to live our life, when we learn to to live out the life that God predestined for us, that God wrote in our scroll, all of us, before we were born, knitted together in our mother's womb, God had a scroll for us that was our life. And he said, I want you to live this. I want you to step out this path that I have put before you. But like James is saying, we have to remember to choose him again and again and again and again. We have to remember to let go. I think in these dreams, God was showing me, you are on the path I've set for you. It was almost as if these other things that he had shown me are other paths that I could have taken, are other ways I could have gone. And there's been times where I've been in prayer weeping, saying, God, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And we get a moment like this where he says, I've shown you and you've said yes to me. I've shown you and you've taken my call. I've shown you and you've taken from my wisdom. So we have to remember everything. This is going to be our last, I'm going to try. No, I'm going to get through James 5, even if I have to speed the center. But we're going to get through James 5 because I, I feel like God is stirring something for next year to begin. But... All of this letter that James has written, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the church in Jerusalem that has been persecuted by Saul, has been ripped out of their homes. They're afraid. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's around the corner. They don't know how they're going to be able to live their next year. And I, I said at the beginning of this, I feel like this is where we, the church, are at now, that James is writing directly to us to say, you are scared. You are afraid. You don't know what's coming. But take faith. Take hope, my people. There is something I've got. It's moving. It's moving. And there's something that I want to bring you into. James 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. <laughs> so we've just come out of, out of James, James 4. And he speaks about not boasting about tomorrow. He speaks about being a people who trust him, who walk with him, who want to be with him. And then he takes an interesting, an interesting spin at the beginning of James 5. And he says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. 
they are crying out against you and the and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord of hosts you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter you have condemned and murdered your righteous person he does not resist you James is saying in this, it's interesting that James has been writing this letter trying to encourage the people, but in the same way, he gives them, again, as Dave said, a little slap to say, you were hiding in your homes. You've got all your comforts. You've got all the things you need. You are comfortable and happy. You're being able to move through and move about, and it's all well and good for you, but there is other people out there that are struggling and hurting, and I've called you to be a people after me. It's quite interesting, while I was... I was Preparing this during the week, I um, have a friend in Sri Lanka that, that we sow, this house sows into, and I was talking to him during the week, and his take on COVID-19 has been incredibly interesting. He said to me, how are you guys going with COVID-19? And I went, oh, I don't know if I want to answer that yet. Let me ask you first, and I'll answer afterwards, because we've been pretty much unscathed here in Queensland. We had like, what, four weeks where we had to stay inside a little bit, and that's about it. But he told me that, he said, for us, COVID-19 is very real and very challenging. He said, we can go to a farmer's market. The farmer's market just near his house, a week before he had gone, they went to the farmer's market. Uh, sorry, he didn't go. There were some friends of his from the church that he leads went to the farmer's market, and somebody in the farmer's market got tested right there, in the market and they had coronavirus. So what they do is they wrap up everybody who's in the market, they get hoarded into a bus and they get driven to a site up the mountain to quarantine for two weeks. If you don't have your phone, bad luck. You don't get to call your wife to say, or your husband to say, hey, I'm, I'm missing. You just get, you go to quarantine. You get the clothes on your back. So every day, and this is a, a South African guy who lives in Colombo, in the, in the centre of Sri Lanka, or the capital of Sri Lanka, and he could at any stage get zipped away. And I said, he said, so how about you guys? I was like, well, we watch the football in stadiums and things are pretty good. We go to all our markets, nothing's closed, Christmas is pretty much as usual. And I started to think, man, we live different lives. Their finances are stretched right now to the point that he doesn't, he said, I don't know where, how we're going to operate because there are no things open. There is nothing happening. We can get zipped away. We've lost a lot of our freedoms. And that's what James is saying to the church in Jerusalem. Hey, all you guys that are sitting pretty inside with all your wealth, your fattened calves, your houses, all your food, you're sitting inside, but there is a people who need you out there. And I think that what James is doing here is he's not saying, hey, you guys, you, you, you can't be rich, that wealth is not, not of godly. I've heard people use this verse to say, if you're wealthy, then you're, you're not living a life of Christ. That's not what James is saying. What James is doing is he is reiterating what, what Jesus says in Matthew 6.24. And he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money because one of them will hold your heart and will take the things that I want you to have. And what James is saying is he's saying, in this moment where things have gotten real tight, you have despised your worship to the Father and you have lent into your worship for the things that are around you. We're doing okay. 
And what it actually does is it dulls your faith to say, God, we don't need anything right now. We're doing pretty well. But I tell you, when I was on the phone call to my friend, my heart was ripped. And I said to him, what do you need? We'll send it. What do you need? We'll send it, whatever we can do. Because God is saying that, that while you guys are doing well, I want your heart to beat for the rest of the body. Because when the rest of the body is hurting, we're all hurting. When they're hurting, we're hurting. When they're succeeding, we're succeeding. And James is saying, I have something for you bigger than the things you've put in your stalls. I have something for you that's bigger. And it reminds me of this story in Mark 10, this parable that Jesus tells. Chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out in his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said, But teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and he said he loved him and he said you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus said to them again children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses oh sorry houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first Again, Jesus is not reiterating the fact that you have to be poor to enter the kingdom. He's saying your heart is split on two things. You want me, you want me, but you're not willing to give away all that you have in order to, to be with me. See, his heart was split. Jesus saw straight through his facade, straight into his heart, to said, you want something bigger than me. You want to put me on a shelf alongside the other God you've got there. Mammon, the other God that you've got on that shelf, you want me to be right there alongside of you. You want Jesus, but you also want the other one. And what Jesus is saying is give it away and come into fully who I am and I will show you a different world. I will show you a different kingdom. There was a guy named Sir John Dalbert Acton who wrote a saying which most of you would have heard in 1830, between 1837 and 1869. He wrote it to an Anglican bishop and he says this, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. See, we live in this society, and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, where you go to work, you earn your keep, you buy your home, you make that home a bit bigger, you go back to work, you get your keep, 
you come home, you look after your family, you build a, a, a kingdom and you stay in that kingdom. And then when you get to the end, hopefully you've got enough of your kingdom to pass on to your, ch- your children so that their kingdom can be passed on and be passed on and be passed on. Now, there's nothing wrong with that so long as that isn't your God. If that becomes the thing we worship, that if I don't finish my world having my kingdom to hand on, then I've failed as a man. No, if I don't leave this world having served my God with all that I am, I've failed. See, Jesus is flipping this thing on its head and he's saying, you can have money, but I promise you that if it gets in the way, it will be given and broken from you. Because if you worship that, it will become all that you are. And we see other examples throughout the scriptures where he doesn't just use money as the only God that people worship, but what leads to money is a power. And what James is breaking all the way through this letter is the same thing that Job was breaking, pride of man. We want money because money gives us what? Power. Money makes us the guy. We want the next job because we get the more money, then we're the bigger. We're over more people. So we want more money because more money gives us more things and more things makes us a bigger person. So all of a sudden I have all these things, I'm this strong, powerful person and I can do just about anything with it. My brother has this funny saying where he says, you want to get to a place where you can just money away your problems. It's pretty hilarious, I like it. And then I don't like it at the same time. So his whole theory is, if something's broken, I'll just buy a new one because I've got enough money to just buy a new one. So his whole theory is, I earn enough to get to a place where money becomes my safety. Money becomes my protector. Money becomes all that I am. And what James is saying is if you live this way, if you live this way, it will all rot and burn and you will live a life that you feel most broken about. Sean and I had a, had a meeting. Was it this week? It was during the week, right? I don't remember. We had a meeting at some point, either this week or last week, sometime in that vicinity with a, a, a financial investor, essentially. And it was a great meeting. We were just, we were just trying to get a little b- bit more money in the bank, you know, just a little bit. And we were chatting with this lady and, and she was explaining, a, a, a beautiful lady, explaining uh, things so incredibly. And I said to her at the end, I said, what's the end goal? Because she ex- was explaining millions money, hand over fist. She was explaining big amounts of money and and friends of hers. And I said, what's the end goal? How much is enough? And she laughed and she said, you know, when you come into this realm, they don't know the answer to that question. They just want more. So this money, this mammon, this chasing of this God just leads to more and more and more. And then I get a bigger house. It amazes me how many rappers and basketball people go broke because they create these lifestyles that now they need a million dollars a year, they need 10 million, 15 million, because it just keeps going bigger and bigger. But what James is saying is he's saying, let the pride of man go and let me build in you who I am and none of that will matter. Jesus wasn't poor. If you go back through and you watch the money that that they had, the things that they were able to buy, they weren't walking around broken and poor. Jesus had money. But he didn't need it to be who he was because he knew who he was in the Father. That's the life, James is saying. Don't hide in your ivory tower because the things around you are falling apart. Don't hide in the comforts, as he says, with the fattened calf because the things 
will hurt you. He goes on and he says, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When we first started leading, it, leading this house, a, a good friend of ours and, and a, an apostle to the house, Mike, he, he told us something that stuck with me and has challenged me our whole walk in leading. He said, if you trade in the dark, you will receive in the dark. He said, if you give in darkness, you will receive in darkness. And what he was saying is if you cut corners, if you sting your dollar here or there, you don't know what it is you're actually sowing into. But he said, but in the light, if you sow in into the light, you know exactly what you're sowing into. You know what the harvest will reap. And we took that literally. Anything that was, anything that was operating even slightly not above board, we scrapped it. Because I didn't want to be trading something and then all of a sudden things start to fall apart. And what James is saying is you ripped off the workers you had in your field and you don't think anyone noticed. But guess what? Their cries have been heard by the Father. Their cries have been heard by the Lord. And there is a reaping that is coming from your dishonesty. Anytime I've, I've sat with people in business or been asked to speak into something, it's the first thing that I say, get everything above board because if anything is in darkness that darkness will corrupt your whole system and you will fall into what james is saying you think i stinged a guy a hundred dollars on a deal but the cries of him reach the ears of the lord bring yourself fully into the light align yourself fully with the kingdom of heaven and if you're a little bit short he will bring you through don't sting the system in order trying to get a little bit more, it will never work. It may work in the short term, but the long term is that harvest will come back and it will bite you in the baton. You'll remember that now. Ben said baton. Enough with money. He moves on. It's like he just, at the end of the letter, he just gives him a little money slap and then he moves on to a much brighter subject, suffering. And he says in James 5, chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I actually think in this instance, he almost flips over and he's talking to those who have been persecuted. He's talking to those who have been robbed. He's talking to those who are in the midst of suffering, the ones who aren't sitting in their ivory towers with their fattened calves. He's talking to the ones who are really hurting. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take to the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may fall under 
so you may, sorry, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I um, during the lockdown times, I got into a little bit of backyard farming. It wasn't a curb garden; it was backyard farming. Okay, I was out the back farming my land, and I planted a heap of um, garlic, and I was really excited about. You know how they make those? Um, they like weave the garlic together, and you get those big, beautiful runs of garlic at like a at like a fair or a or a, what do you call it? A market. So I had this vision of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant this garlic and little did I know I just planted it in a small pot. I wasn't going to get a long weave, but that's beside the point. I planted this garlic and I waited for about four weeks and nothing came out of the ground. Nothing. And I said to Jess, I'm not doing garlic. I'm done with garlic. Garlic didn't take. I'm not planting it. And I went out with my little spade to rip up the garlic to get way for the next adventure I was going to take. And just through the soil, was a, a little crack of green delightfulness. And I was so excited. I came back and said, no, we're back on with garlic. We're still getting garlic. And I waited and the garlic grew and it grew and it grew. And I said to Jess, I'm still frustrated that the garlic is not in my dinner yet. And I went outside and it had a long green stalk. I'm like, that's pretty good. Looked on Google. Yep, if it's long enough, you've got garlic, you're good to go. So I reached in and I pulled out the garlic. And on the end of the garlic was this tiny, beautiful little piece of not even close to close ready of garlic. And I realized, I thought, oh, I'll just plant it back in. So I pushed it back into the ground. Two days later, come out, things grow dead. <laughs> and I realized, jeepers, I was impatient with what I was waiting for. I was impatient because I so badly wanted to be able to crush my garlic and say, everybody, I plant, I'm a farmer. I planted this. I planted this thing. But right there, God, God speaks. You were impatient with the things from my timing. You were impatient with what I've shown you. See, we get caught all the time. And, and you know, prophetic words are incredibly helpful. They're also incredibly unhelpful because a prophetic word can draw a picture for you 20, 30 years ahead. And we go, but God, I want it now. I just got the new iPhone. I want this thing now. You said, God, you said I could have it. Yeah, I did, boy. But when you're ready, when you walk the walk you need to walk, when you've grown up in the stature that I need you to grow up into, then I will, I will bring you those things. I am true to my word, but you need to be ready. You need to wait. But see, what we do is we get too pepped up on Mountain Dew. We get too excited that we just go out and we dig up the garlic. We dig it up. We do what we know we shouldn't do because we're excited. God said, I'm going to, I'm going to Asia. God said, I'm going to China and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to save China. I don't know much about the scriptures. I don't know much about who I am in God, but I'm going. Yeah, he did say that. And yes, that is in your scroll. And yes, it's further down the track when you were good and ready, when I've prepared you, when you're ready to go, when you've trained enough, when you know who you are, when you know who I am, then I've called you into a nation. So what happens is we get all disgruntled. We come back. These prophets don't know what they're saying. I actually don't even want to hear from anybody anymore. I don't even know if I want to hear from God. I love him, but I'll just be over here. He wasn't wrong. God wasn't wrong. You fluffed it. You dug up the garlic too early. You need to go back to the drawing board and say, God, what is your timing? So when God gives me this dream, and I, I, in a way I'm, I'm, 
I'm not frustrated, but I'm eagerly anticipating the things he's asked me to do that I want to be in the right place. God says, you've made the right choice, but there's a time and there's a season and there's a moment and I will bring you to the place you need to be. So I sit back and I say, okay, God, what do I do? And James explains it. He says, establish your heart. Establish your heart in me. Establish who I am. Establish that when your heart receives of the things of me, that it goes into good soil. I've preached that so many times from, from this barrel, that the, the parable that Jesus is saying is prepare the soil. Prepare your heart to receive the things of him. That when a word gets spoken, when you get given a prophetic invitation to come in, it goes into good soil. That the enemy can't snatch away the word. It doesn't grow up among thorns. It doesn't, it doesn't grow up on a concrete slab. It goes into good, healthy soil. So James is saying, establish your heart. Bring yourself to a place where you know who you are, when you know who he is. And I love that he throws in here, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Just before James, we preached about Job and we explained what happens there. Job has a phenomenal ability to wait for the garlic. He, he, he wavers along the way, but he realizes midway through, he realizes, God, you are bigger than me. As much as this is not fair, as much as this hurts, as much as, as I, I can't stand to be in this, God, you are bigger than me. Job is a book of wisdom. It's, it's taken in in the books of wisdom. It's, a, it's counted as one of those. That there is wisdom to take from the story of Job as he beats Leviathan, as he stands in a place of humility to say, God, you are bigger than any pride that is in me. So I will bend my knee to everything, including the level of absolute brokenness that I'm in. And I shouldn't be here because I'm a son of you. All of that gets broken in Job. And then what happens? God brings him into a double portion. God brings him in to everything he lost. He returns twofold. But what has to happen in Job is the pride of man has to be removed. The pride of man has to be taken away. We have to establish our hearts. And then we have to wait on him. We have to wait. His timing is not our timing. Our timing is no good. Our timing will not bring about the things we want to bring about. We have to seek him. We have to wait. God, what are you doing? What does this look like? And when you hear his voice, regardless of what everyone else says, when you know that you know that you know it's him, I will not back down from this. I will step into a place that you've led me. Why? Because you've led me. It makes no sense. It goes against what took place in the past. It goes against what's always been done. But you have led me here and I will not let it go. I will not. Because when I get to the end of my hundred years, when I take my helmet and I raise my bat in the air, I get to say, God, I think I did everything you asked me to do. I positioned myself in everything you asked of me. I didn't listen to those around me. At times it was difficult and at times it hurt and at times people left me because they thought that I was insane. But God, I established my heart and I waited for you like Moses. I will not go unless you go before me. I don't know if I said it from here, but I was chatting with somewhere and I was saying, you know, I wonder if we were in just a conversation just dreaming 
through the scriptures and just asking things that I don't know that we see. But I, I wonder if Moses, if he didn't ask God, if he didn't say, I won't go if the, if the Spirit doesn't go before me, I wonder what if, what if he got the pillar of fire in the cloud? Was it, was it Moses' heart and desire to be with God all the time and to have his provision there all the time what brought on God saying the provision's yours? See, we partner with God. We ask and we receive. To see his will, we have to ask and we receive. But I wonder how many times in my life I just haven't asked. And I go, God didn't give me that thing. Well, you never asked for it. You never positioned, right? James says earlier in James 4, you ask, but you ask wrong. You ask for your own things. But if you ask for what I want, if you ask for what will advance my kingdom, not your kingdom, I will give you whatever you need. And see, I think at times we dream too small. We do it the hard way because we fail to ask God for the things that would make it a bit easier. And I'm challenged by that. God, what, what will make this journey to bring your kingdom to the Gold Coast easier? I'll take a pillar of fire and I'll take a cloud. But we have to learn as a people to position our hearts, establish our hearts, to wait on him. And to, do not, and to not curse ourselves. The last point is to not curse ourselves. At the end, it says, above all, uh, sorry, earlier in that, it says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, all of us who have been in church before have probably heard this verse being used to make sure that we show up to our serving times and we get here at 9.30 when the service starts. But I don't quite think that's what James is really saying here. What James is saying is that, as earlier he described that there is power in our tongue, right? There's life and death in our tongue. There is an establishing ability in our tongue that when we establish something... So it is. And what James is saying is that when you establish something, you speak it into being. And he's saying, do not curse yourself by speaking something into being that will not actually take place. For example, I don't speak myself into something for shine. I'm going to give you $1,000. And I establish that by my tongue. But then I don't let that thing come to pass. Does that make sense? So what we actually do is we establish either a curse or a blessing. So it says there are blessings and curses that come from our tongue. So if I talk rubbish about Mark, I'm establishing a curse on both Mark and myself through the power that's in my tongue. So when we all go away from here and we get to sit and discuss whether Ben's sermon was good or not, <laughs> that was a terrible example, but... <laughs> whether Ben's a good person or not. I get to think about my words as to am I establishing a curse or am I establishing a blessing? So when I speak about my brother, I speak with love in my heart because I want to establish a blessing in his life and in mine. But what James is saying is the same thing takes place when we give ourselves to something. When we say, yes, I will be there at that meeting. Now I've established something in the spiritual, I've established that Ben will be at that thing. If I don't show up, 
I now operate in a place that would never was never meant to happen. Now I've broken my, the establishment I've made with my tongue. So James is not saying, hey, church leaders, this will give you a good poke to make sure everyone comes and serves when they're meant to serve. If you've said you're going to serve, serve, because you've established it. But it's bigger than what James is establishing here. He's saying as a brother, as brothers and sisters, let's establish what's really taking place. And if you don't know, rather don't say anything. Don't swear by anything else. I don't know is an okay answer. It can be annoying when somebody won't give you a yes or a no and you need a yes or a no. Now everyone on that Facebook event is going to be be pressing the maybe button. Ben said, press the maybe button. No, make a decision and then stick by that decision. That's what James is saying. Do not curse yourself. Do not bring yourself into a place where you say you're one thing, but then you act another way. You say you know something, but then you, you act in a way that says you don't actually know that thing. James finishes this letter. I need 10 more minutes, if that's okay. It's only five minutes over. I'm doing okay. James finishes this letter in an incredible way. James 5, 13 to 20. He finishes by saying this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. That word there is actually psalms. Let him sing psalms. Let him, let him get stringed instruments. Let him, let him be joyful. Let him be filled with joy. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When we operate in God, when we operate in the fullness of who he is, the life that happens around us, the events that happen around us, don't change our relationship with the Father. See, what James is ending this thing is, he's saying, do not let the status quo, do not let the society around you dictate your relationship with God. So when we're happy, we we pray more because we're happy and we like to pray when we're happy. It's actually the other way around. When we're sad, we pray more because we want God to intervene in our sadness and bring us out. But when we're happy, we don't want to pray very much because we're happy. I don't need to pray. But what James is saying, he's saying, no, you set a way for your life that you pray and worship him regardless of what's going on around you. That your system, the life system that you build is, Lord, I will worship you in the valley and on the mountaintop. God, I will pray with you in the valley and on the mountaintop and on the climb upwards. I will worship and glorify your name regardless of what's taking place around me. And that becomes more and more difficult as the trials of life hit back, as things hurt and as we get upset and we become offended and and things start to hurt us, we become, oh, I'm not going to pray because I don't feel good today. But James is saying, set your life in such a way that you operate in God regardless of what's taking on around you, regardless of what's being, being played on around you. He continues and he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He then goes on, he says, if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another you may be, that, that you may be healed. I just want to clear something up here. Those two sins are different words. 
The first one is hamartia, G264, which I explained before we went to James, the difference of that word. So if you need to, go back and have a listen to that sermon. But that, that is saying, and the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That is a leading into salvation. Pray for those, pray for those who are sick, even if they're not saved. And let them become in and see who I am. Let their sins be saved. Then he continues on and he says, confess your sins one to another. That word sins there is, is uh, parapetoma, forgive my Greek, G3900. And it means to sideslip, to enter into unintentional error or to willfully transgress. So James is not saying run out and find all the unsaved and make them confess their sins to you before you will lead them to the Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's saying pray unto them regardless of what they've done. Ask for their healing, declare their healing and watch them come into the kingdom. But then he says, as brothers and sisters, as we walk about our life, as we go about changing our mind and operating the renewal of our mind, go to a brother and ask him for help to help you come through the issue in which you're walking. Why? Because he's not perfect and either am I. So he actually helps me instead of hindering me. So I don't then go to my brother and ask him to judge me and give me a slap. I go because he understands the position I'm in and I know that he can help pull me out. Does that make sense? So I'm not asking those who don't know Christ to come and, con and confess their sins before they're allowed to come in. That's not what James is saying. You are forgiven regardless if you choose to walk with him and abide in him, come into the kingdom. But now that I'm in the kingdom, I want to tell Sean my transgressions, my side slips, the places I'm struggling. Why? Because as a brother, he helps me. As a brother, he leads me back into righteousness. So it doesn't become a condemning thing, like I have to go to confession each week and tell Sean my sins. I go because he's my friend and my brother, and I need him to help me in this area. And he comes to me for the same reason. What we've done in the church is we've made it that everybody is so prim and proper and, and nobody has any garbage. We all have garbage. And we all are trying to work through the trash bag one piece at a time to ask God to remove it out of our lives. But at times we need help because sometimes, like a hoarder, we think that we need that, that piece that sits on our mantle. And we think, no, no, I'm going to hold that. And then someone, Sean, comes in and he says, hey, bro, that thing is hurting you. Let it go. No, I'm right in this. No, you're not. So now where I'm in on myself and, I'm, and I think I'm right and I can't see my blind spots, when I bring Sean in, he helps me see my blind spots. And if I come with a humble heart, I can say, thank you. Let me change those areas. The problem is, is where pride creeps in. And if, if Sean starts gunning for my job, then all of a sudden he doesn't become a brother and he keeps tearing me down instead of building me up. That's why the, the protocol to operate in the kingdom is then to bring another brother. So that now there's two. There's a witness there to build in, to help me better myself in righteousness and in the kingdom, not to hurt myself. That's why there's a protocol in God to operate in the things. And James is saying, do this together. Do this as a family. Do this as a body of people. Do this as a, a community who can help one another, not hinder one, one another. Build each other up. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Did I skip the part where he talks about? No, it's down the bottom. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from the death and will cover a multitude of sins. Hebrews 11.1 1 explains faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. James is ending this letter to say, have faith into the things you cannot see. The things that you're sitting in your home and you don't know how you're able to come out because there is... Jews persecuting you on every turn. There's people hurting you on every turn. You don't know where your finances are coming from. You don't know where this, you don't know where that. Have faith. Have an assurance of things hoped for that God has brought you to a place and a time and have a conviction that he will lead you into where it is you're going. James wraps this up to say, you are in a position now to be who God has always called you to be. You are in a place now to operate as my kingdom and to watch my kingdom flow through you. But you need to lean on me and hear the things that I am explaining to you. As we leave 2020, like I said at the start, I don't want to just scrape by to get to the end, to the third, and just roll over the line and go, awesome, it's going to be so much better now. What I'm challenging myself in now is to stop and take stock of this year. Okay, God, what did you show me? What have I learned? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that you are? What is it you're directing me into? How can I learn and grow from a year and not just throw it off the pile heap? Because we can do that for 2021, 2022. We can do that for the next 10 years where we just get through and we scrape it off. Hope next one's better. We just get through, we scrape it off. Or we can stop now and we can breathe in and say, Lord, let me take stock of who you are. Let me take stock of what I've learned. Let me come in to the next thing you have for me, the next year that you have for me, with an encouragement in my heart, with hope and passion and desire to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done in my life and in the lives of those around me. That's what James is encouraging a people. You are hurt, you are tired, you are broken, you are hiding in your homes, but I want to draw you out into something bigger. That although it's scary out there, although it's hard to see past the lantern, please come and let me show you what God is going to develop in your life. Does that make sense? This letter that James writes has, has changed my view of the way we are to be encouraged by the Scriptures. What seems like such a difficult book to read and understand, what seems like such a challenging push from a father in the faith becomes this incredible encouragement to us as a people to get off our hands and start asking God, who are you and who have you asked me to be? So I want to encourage you, don't let this year just slide out. Take stock. Ask God, reveal what you've shown in me. Reveal who you've asked me to be. Allow me to learn so that when I go into the next year, I go in a stronger, 
more faithful, more hopeful Ben than the one who came from the year before. God, reveal your heart to me in this time. So why don't we stand and we'll just pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for James and for the letter that he penned. I thank you for the wisdom and the courage that you gave him to challenge a people in such a difficult time. Lord, may we receive that encouragement. May we see this as a time to rise up and not shrink back. May we see this, Lord, as a time to take stock of the things you've given us. To center ourselves before you. God, challenge our hearts to desire you more, to want to be with you more. God, I break right now, Jesus, in your name, this cultural Christianity, Father. Lord, like James said, help us to set our lives that we worship, we pray, we glorify your name, whether we're on the mountain or in the valley. Lord, help us to set our lives where it's not just a Sunday morning. God, but we outlive our lives desiring you, passionate to know you more, to see you more. God, we are so grateful for who you are. Jesus, we worship you. We glorify your name. We declare your kingship in our lives, in this city and in this nation, God. Have your way in us. Let your kingdom come, Jesus. Let your will be done. Help us to lay aside our will that yours may come. God, we love you. We honor you. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.